Welcome to Nipton Talks. This is Dr. Ashley Roby. I'm a quadruple board certified plastic surgeon and I have with me Dr. Kelly Colleen. Kelly. Hi. <laughs> For those of you that don't know Dr. Colleen, she is also known as Dr. Nano 210, special E show. And Dr. Colleen Kelly, you went to University of California, San Diego for undergrad. What did you study there? Biopsychology. Biopsychology. Nice. I know. It, weird, but it was fun. And then Loma Linda for medical school. And then you did a general surgery and a plastic surgery residency. So you are double board certified. Correct. And from what I heard, one of the best in LA. Absolutely. Well, that's what I tell myself anyway. <laughs> you got to start somewhere, right? Exactly. Go to my own brain. <laughs> so today's podcast, Dr. Colleen and I are going to be talking about some of the myths of plastic surgery. And our plan is to debunk some of them. Sounds good. So we came up with a list of potential topics, some of them less controversial than others. Do you want to start off with an easy one, Kelly? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. So... People will ask me, if I don't want to get a breast lift, can I just get bigger implants and not get a lift? What, what do you say to that? Please don't, for the <laughs> love of God. Why don't you just put that as my number one consultation for revisional breast surgery? It is, is it really? Always, absolutely. It's always a male plastic surgeon. A woman goes in for a lift and he says the same thing every time. It's not worth the scars. Let me just put an implant in you and you will get a lift. And then six months later, they have a droopy breast that is even larger and they hate it even more. Yeah, that's so funny because I remember like literally right when I got out into practice, it was one of the first few consults I had seen. I saw this lady, she wanted an AUG and I measured her breast droop or ptosis like we call it. And it was at least nine centimeters. So for the viewers out there, severe droop. And I had recommended to her a breast lift and she said, well, another plastic surgeon here in town told her that she doesn't really need that. She just should get bigger implants. And being so new at the time, I was thinking to myself, am I missing something here? Is it just that I don't know what I'm doing? No, it's not that I don't know what I'm doing. It's that it's a common misconception and unfortunately one that's promulgated by other plastic surgeons that say that exact kind of thing, like just get bigger implants. So myth number one debunked. Larger implants will not give you a lift. If you do have some slight breast droop, you can fill out what kind of looks like more of a deflated breast as opposed to a truly totic breast. Maybe you'll get a centimeter of lift, but it's more about filling out a, a droopy breast. You're not going to get a really substantial lift. If you don't want larger breasts, please don't get an implant. I mean, you're going to have larger breasts if you get an implant. And so if you go in there, you like your breast size, you just want them lifted, then you, they should be lifted. That is the right surgery. I agree. Okay, myth number two, liposuction is really good for weight loss. Well, I mean, come on. No, it objectively is not. I, I just had a TikTok go viral and I said something about liposuction and I have all of these kooks in the comments like saying all kinds of stupid stuff. Like my friend went from a size 14 to a size six with liposuction. Oh and I'm my. like, dear, dear God. And I'm like, whoever did that to her should go to jail because that was probably 30 liters of liposuction to yeah. do that. But no, I mean, it should never, ever, ever be used for weight loss. And frankly, fat doesn't weigh very much. So you're not going to lose very much weight, even with several liters. Off. Exactly. So for plastic surgery, and most of what I do, and I'm assuming what most of what you do is outpatient surgery, the maximum mm -hmm. amount of recommended lipoaspirate, so volume removed is five liters. So at, you know, let's just say fat is close to water, although it's slightly less for math easiness, that's about 11 pounds. And some of it's going to be too messy. And so really, it's probably more like 
five, six, seven pounds of fat removed at maximum. So yeah, going down um, multiple dress sizes, I, I just don't think so. No, and I mean, I think it's important for your listeners to understand that there's a reason why we have that five liter cutoff. It, in general, if you are, if you start removing more fluid, you're going to have massive fluid shifts, which can lead to cardiac arrhythmias. So you can have issues with your heart if you start using that much fluid and removing that much fluid. The other issue is going to be lidocaine. The numbing medicine, there is a number that is kind of, we don't go past it because it also can affect the heart. So in general, surgeons that are doing this are taking a risk with your life and your safety in order to do what? To make you a little, a dress size smaller? Like that's just not safe and no ethical surgeon would ever do that. I agree. I think part of the problem is that you have people that don't even know that it is dangerous and that's where it gets really scary. And this leads me to my next myth and that's that all people saying that they are plastic surgeons are the same. No, and this and this is of course you and I both know is absolutely not true. The reality is that a lot of people are performing cosmetic procedures for their financial incentive and they are not properly trained. So they are out there for typically much discounted prices doing a lot of the same procedures we do in an unsafe way. People that aren't properly trained and board certified cannot get hospital privileges as you know they also aren't beholden to the same national organizations they don't have to follow the same rules and so you're just taking a risk with your safety when you are seeing someone who is not a fully trained board certified plastic surgeon right so what most people don't appreciate is that you don't have to be a trained plastic surgeon to do plastic surgery you can be a a dermatologist, you can be an ER doctor, you can be an internal medicine doctor and do plastic surgery. You're not going to do it well for the most part, but you can do that. Classically, most people in that category would not have privileges to do those kinds of surgeries at hospitals. So that's one way to parse out. Also, just check their board certification. You can Google the American Board of Plastic Surgery and look up and see who's certified by that. And if your surgeon's name is not on there, uh, you should take pause. The other thing, there's the cosmetic surgery which is obviously different than plastic surgery. So it's a, it's a different yeah. board and not as rigorous, certainly. But also, did you know that there was an American osteopathic board of plastic surgery? Interestingly enough, I've encountered, which is apparently an ethical and totally legit thing. And I didn't realize this until recently. So traditionally, this is another thing that, you know, kind of gets brought up a lot in, in medical groups, but the lay, lay people out there may not know. But if you are a doctor in the United States, you are either an MD or a DO. And traditionally, DOs have been a bit discriminated against and kind of looked at as lesser than and had more difficult times getting some of the kind of competitive residencies that mm-hmm. MD students will, will take. And so the DO world has combated this by having their own residency programs. And so there are legitimate, well-trained DO plastic surgeons from DO plastic surgery programs, and they do have their own board. So that is the only monkey wrench that is thrown into looking up your board certification. They there may be good plastic surgeons that are not certified by the board that Dr. Roby and I are. Yeah, so you might have to search elsewhere. And I don't know that much about their training program, but certainly DOs also have training programs that I'm sure are comparable in certain situations. But the cosmetic surgery boards are nonsense. So basically, years ago, a lot of these surgeons were trying to get legitimacy and make themselves fluffed up. So they made up this fake board called the you know American Board of Cosmetic Surgery. It is not a board recognized by the American 
medical board medical specialties and all you have to do is take their dumb test you're kind of certified forever apparently and you now it didn't used to be this way but now they require that you do a quote fellowship with one of their approved doctors so you're basically training with another poorly trained surgeon and it's just a bunch of shenanigans and nonsense yeah it behooves any potential patient to do a little bit of background research and figure out who was offering to do what on them okay next myth people think this a lot so when you're doing a breast lift you cut the nipples off and just put them right back on (laughs) do people ask you that a lot too people ask me that a lot too i do a lot of breast reductions and they ask me that too no we don't do that there is an old method of breast reduction and people still do it i personally don't ever do this method but it's called a free nipple i've actually never even seen it done in my even in my training where the nipple is removed and put back on as a skin graft but no that is not done the nipple is just rotated north and we we make the areola smaller by removing the top layer of skin and closing the skin around it so nothing is removed your nipple still is living where it should so i do free nipple grafting for men for oh, yes, really for men. i did yeah that is correct i do that as well for really big gynecomastia where they have mm-hmm. tons of droop i feel like leaving that pedicle just to maintain the blood supply leaves too much bulk yeah and i just say Absolutely. i'll just chop it off and then i do put it on and then the only and challenge then... with that is if they have issues with pigmentation then they can always get tattoos but i just it hasn't really been much of an issue yeah it's it's not ideal but it's kind of the only method for that and for female to male top surgery that's what we do it's almost the same surgery absolutely okay so this is akin to this with regards to the belly button same thing and people will ask me can i design my belly button or can i pick whatever belly button i want during a tummy tuck no you can't do you want to tell our listeners why yeah your belly button is your belly button you, you get to see it more with a tummy tuck because you no longer have skin hanging over it but we just cut around it and then pull the skin down and make everything tight and then the belly button stays where it lives it just needs a new home so we have to make a hole and pull them out yeah that's called a transposition so just a technical term meaning to basically make a new opening in the upper portion of the the abdominal skin so like kelly said so you can still see it the only thing that i think can sometimes change and i think usually for the better is that i see a lot of people that get abdominoplasties that also have an umbilical hernia at the same time so i'm pretty much always fixing that because yeah who wants to leave a hernia and especially you're tightening as you placate the rectus muscles around it so i feel like that tends to look better interestingly so if you peruse fashion magazines and if you're looking for swimsuits it's the number of women models that have umbilical hernias. Have you picked up on that? It actually looks kind of high. It, it is pretty high. And it, it's interesting. I, I almost feel like having kind of a large, mildly herniated belly button <laughs> is aesthetically pleasing or something. Because it, it seems like a lot of models have that. I think so, too. Chosen. It's funny. One of my friends who's a facial plastic surgeon is always pointing out how a lot of models' eyes are far apart. Like, farther apart than you would normally think is aesthetically pleasing. Mm-hmm. But clearly that's like the thing now. So I don't know, maybe small hernias are in. I I understand the eye part. Certainly if you're going to deviate from what's considered classically ideal, you would want a wider set than more more narrowly sure. set. Oh, absolutely. But I don't know. Every time I see it, I mean, not to pick on these poor models because, yeah, they look great. But when I see their hernia, I'm like, oh, you should get that fixed. They don't care. Okay. How about this one? So this comes up a lot because I know both you and I do a fair amount of implants. The breast implant related illness phenomenon. So it's absolutely a real thing. 
I mean, there are people that just do not play well with implants. And then there's some, actually some good data that these patients get better with implant removal. I, I do think that it has been turned into a monster that it's not, unfortunately. And there have been a lot of women who have been convinced that this is what's going on with them when they actually don't have something wrong with their implants. So this is a tricky, complicated subject for sure. I think so too. And the problem with the data is that it's not great. I mean, there. when you said there's some data that say some people get better, but also a, a lot of people don't get better. I mean, the problem is right now is that we don't really know what it is and how to diagnose it and who has it. You know, there's no test I can run on a patient that will say, hey, yeah, you have implant illness. And there's no test that tells me if someone's susceptible to it. So when someone comes to you and they feel crummy, and they have, you know, whatever symptoms because the list of symptoms that they bring you from these breast implant illness groups are absurd. I mean, it's literally every symptom known to man has been attributed to this. I can't tell any of these patients if they're going to get better. All I can do is quote them some of these studies that if the implants come out, you're seeing about 65% of patients will get better. And, you know, that's that's not a great, I mean, it's a good improvement. It's obviously better than placebo, but it's not fantastic. You know, I would love for it to be 100%. I mean, the goal someday is that we figure out who is going to have trouble with implants and then we could test for them before implants and then they would never have the problem but right now we just there's a lot of unknowns with it for sure it's hard to definitively diagnose someone with this illness which from a diagnostic perspective presents a real conundrum but for those listeners that don't know what breast implant related illness is or has been proposed to be is that patients that have breast implants sometimes present with a constellation of symptoms and and classically like Dr. Colleen said they're they're usually pretty vague and nonspecific things like fatigue or, or brain fog joint pain anxiety hair loss, depression, etc. Drooping eyelids, dry skin, wrinkles. I mean, you name it. I've heard literally everything attributed to implants. So unfortunately, there are a lot of other things that can cause these exact symptoms. So it's it's not like there's this pathognomonic constellation of symptoms that make your plastic surgeon say, aha, yes, this is definitely the problem. So it's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion where you're trying to rule out other things and you think to yourself, well, I suppose. And for patients that are really concerned and and they don't want their implants anyway, I say to them, yeah, if you want them out and you're convinced that this is contributing, like, let's take them out. Worst case scenario, if you don't get better, at least you've crossed that off your list of things of the potential causes. So I don't think it's a lose-lose if if you're having all those issues and you're concerned. No, I think it's absolutely the right thing to do if people have concerns. I take care of tons of breast implant illness patients and I have that exact same conversation with them. You know, I I think the most important thing is that they have a thorough medical workup before surgery, not only just for surgical safety, but to make sure that there's not something we're missing, that they have a thyroid problem. I I saw a patient who ended up having metastatic cancer, and that's why she was feeling so crummy. I mean, you have to do a proper medical workup when someone presents with real symptoms. And then if you've ruled out all of the big things that make people feel the way that particular patient is feeling, then removing the implant makes sense because then you rule that out as a potential cause. For sure. How about because within this population of patients, and I think there's a lot of information out there, especially on blogs and such, about the means in which the implants are moved. So you can remove the implant and close up the pocket and be done. You can remove the implant and take out part of the capsule. And what the capsule is, is, is the lining of 
your cells that are just adjacent to the implant. There's another technique that seems to be particularly popular with patients that have concerns they have breast implant related illness, and that's called an end block resection. So basically you're removing or at least attempting to remove the implant and the capsule as one piece. Yeah, the end block thing makes me crazy because it's not, as a general surgeon, the proper use of that term. So the proper use of end block is when we take tumors out, we take whatever the tumor is with a rim of normal tissue, right? Because you don't want to cr- cut across a cancer cell because the cancer cells spread when they're not supposed to spread and they also continue to multiply when they shouldn't. This is not a cancer and we're not taking a rim of tissue. So what you're truly doing is a total intact capsulectomy. You're taking the capsule and the implant out as one piece. And there's this belief in the breast implant illness community that there's some kind of toxin or something in that capsule which is causing their symptoms. But there was a study published by Caroline Glitzman and Pat McGuire and Mindy Hawes and Marissa Lawrence, which showed that it does not appear as though that needs to happen, that the rates of improvement are the same whether the implant is removed in that manner, the entire capsule is taken out after the implants out or even a partial which was technically no capsulectomy they just had to send part of the sample for their testing the rate of improvement is the same and so there have been women now for many many years having surgeries they didn't need because online support groups were pressuring them and i think in it it, it's interesting right now because some of these leaders of these groups have been escalating since these studies have been done like making personal attacks against the researchers because they're so heavily invested in this m block thing but you know, part of being a doctor is that we recognize that medicine changes daily. Like I do breast reconstruction different today than I did when I left my training 10 years ago. And these people are so married to the end block and it's like who they are in a weird way. They feel personally attacked that the research is not showing that's needed. And so it's kind of an interesting time right now. Our national societies have put out statements saying you shouldn't be doing end block or telling patients this is the quote right thing to do. It's going to be interesting the next couple of years with where this this kind of entire world of plastic surgery care goes. I agree. And the interesting part about people that advertise in block resections is that even in someone who does it day in, day out, like that's their bread and butter is just doing these complete intact capsulectomies with implant removal is that really only 25% of the time or so are they actually getting it all out in one piece. So even those people that are advertising it, it's not typical to actually get it all out in one piece. So there's an Orange County plastic surgeon that is a darling of the BII people. They have him on their recommended surgeons list and his social media is full of just you know, total intact capsulectomy. So you would think this is all this guy did. Well, you know, he did an interview with me for real self about breast implant illness and surgery, et cetera. And he admits in his interview that he does not get them all out that way. In fact, it's a decently low percentage. I I can't remember what he said. I think it was like 30%. He actually quote can do this way, Mm. but it's all that he shows on his social media is the ones he does. And I mean, it's just interesting. The marketing and the recommended surgeons in this strange world, I don't know, it's really worrisome to me when women get sucked into that because I think they often breed this distrust of doctors and it's really hard to have a relationship with a patient when they don't trust you, when they're told that you want to hurt them and it's not healthy and it worries me. Well, the outcome is not going to be any better if you remove all the capsule or part of the capsule or really even none of the capsule. I don't think it's justifiable in my mind to remove basically a normal capsule that's 
cobwebby thin and yeah. and get into the pec muscle and get into the intercostals and get into the cartilage and the perichondrium of the ribs just to say, look, I got all this stuff, I damaged surrounding normal tissue. It's not going to help your outcome, but look, I did it. I don't think that makes sense at all. And the data does not support that. The data doesn't support it. And there's actually data that if you do a capsulectomy and a breast implant surgery, that you double your complication rate. So, and that's not even in block, you know, that is just a capsulectomy. So I think you are potentially harming people. And they're, the best evidence we have is that you are not helping them by doing that. So our first goal as surgeons is doing things, the right thing for the patient and, and not harming them. And I think when you are allowing a patient to lead you into something that we know is wrong, you are making a mistake as a surgeon. I feel the same way. And I will tell patients that if I see atypical or irregular capsule that looks thickened and, and looks like it would be benefit from removal that I will do it, but I'm not going to damage a bunch of tissue, accept a bunch of collateral damage for no benefit. And and patients will say, okay, then you're not the surgeon for me. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. You know, and I, I often will point out patients will come in and they'll show me, you know, these surgeons Instagram and I'll show them on these surgeons patients. I'll say, look at that capsule. See that's muscle right there. Yeah. I <laughs> he know. took out a chunk of that patient's muscle and people don't really realize the implications of what they're doing. And there's actually a growing online community called Explant Regret mm. that has patients that feel that they were harmed by, you know, their explant surgery. And I think we need to be really careful that we're doing the right thing and we're being led by science, reason, and data and not by something else, not by our pocketbooks. Not by and, emotion, and not, by, not, not by, by emotion. a blog of someone else who thinks that this is what they did, therefore you should do the same. Yeah. Um, it's tough. I agree. So another part with regards to implants, the ALCL. So ALCL stands for anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So how many years has it been since they recalled those textured implants? I, I mean, a cup, maybe three, four? I don't, know. I, I don't know. About three years. I remember actually when my last year in Oregon, which would have been your second year, I think, uh, or first year, we uh, had those USC guys came and talked to us. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of ALCL. They came and did grand rounds and there was only like 40 cases that. And then now there's about a thousand, I think, worldwide. Yeah. And then a couple years, I think 2019, maybe the, the textured implants were taken off the market or the Allergan textured implants. Right. So they're not implanting those textured implants anymore. Sientra still does textured implants. It's just the Allergan so does, ones. So, so does Mentor. But that's not to say that if you have those textured implants that it's advocated that you must go and have them removed. So statistically, and, and this is what I think it's all about putting things in perspective and risks and benefits, right? So if your risk of, of getting ALCL, and it seems to be primarily with textured implants, and honestly, it seems most of them are centered around the old Allergan textured implant. ISL. Yeah, that the risk is about 0.03%. And then when you think about what the risk of getting breast cancer for women in the United States, it's one out of eight, which is 12.5%. So if you have a history of textured Allergan implants, your risk goes from 12.5 to 12.53. I mean, it's a real number, but it doesn't freak me out. It doesn't blow me away as far as this is really bad and concerning and everyone with this implant needs to have removed. I think not. I think not. You know, I have different thoughts. I mean, I just, you know, have been fighting with people on social media about this. So I'm someone who is on my third set of breast implants, right? For me personally. And here's kind of my thoughts about silicone implants in general. You know, silicone implants, the FDA does not give practice guidelines. So they're not going to tell us what to do as surgeons. They just give us data and kind of make recommendations. So we know that silicone implants fail. I, on average, between 
between 10 and 15 years. So I personally don't think it's a great idea to just wait and see what happens because when your silicone implants rupture, you have worse problems. You have capsular contractures, you can get silicone in your breast tissue and your nodes. I think the smartest thing to do is to schedule some kind of implant exchange sometime before they rupture and you should monitor your implants with imaging. Now, if you have textured implants, when you go back for your exchange, I'm going to go off of the, the thoughts of Pat McGuire and some of these other people who are the gurus in ALCLN. If the capsule is easy to take when you're doing implant surgery on people with textured, I, I feel better about removing it because there have been cases where the capsule was left in, the textured was removed, the smooth was in, and they got ALCL later. Mm-hmm. So sure. that's kind of my thoughts on it. But I agree, you don't need to run and have it out. Now, I my first set of breast implants, my personal first set was McGann, which is the same company as Allergan, and my capsules were still in. They were my old over-the-muscle capsules, and I had my implants switched out last fall, and I wanted those fuckers out. I'm not going to lie. I yeah. took my capsules out. I asked them for to be removed because I know it's a small risk, but if you're in there, kind of get rid of it for me, please. Now, did they remove them entirely? They removed them entirely. So I, that, I felt strongly I wanted them out. Well, on one hand, if you think that... Not everyone that has normal looking capsules needs to have them out. But then on the other hand, for you, you want them out. It's a bit of a... It's, it's a hard, you know, it's, it's a hard thing. You're right. The risk is low, but it's there. And if the capsule is a capsule that's easy to remove, which it usually is for a textured implant. Yeah. yeah you, you typically have a thicker capsule just for people listening because the texturing causes inflammation. And it's just an easier capsule to get out. Usually I just feel better taking it out of my patients, but I'm not bullying them into switching their implants out. I also think capsules are easier to get out on top of the muscle. They 100% are. Absolutely. I agree. So, yeah, I I suspect in the world of capsule removals, yours wasn't too bad. No, no. I I had a total mess, though, because I also had a silent rupture. So I had a submuscular silent silicone rupture, and I had my old textured capsules on top of the muscle. So (laughs) I I gave my partner a fun day in the operating room. Oh, nice. No good deed goes unpunished. Yeah. Okay. How about this one? Another plastic surgery myth. So it's better to travel for cosmetic surgery because, hey, you can get a better deal. So it's definitely worth the trip. What do you think? I'm going to say no (laughs) on this one as evidenced by what you and I have both seen in the emergency rooms. No. I mean, you know, the reality is, is there's wonderful plastic surgeons all over the world. Oh, for sure. The other reality is, is they're not cheaper than us. You know, if you're getting Hoyo to do your liposculpture in South America, guess what? It's not going to be cheap. If you're going to South America and having cheap surgery, you're not getting the best and the brightest that country has to offer. And that's just the facts. And people can continue the mental gymnastics about this all they want because it's going on on my TikTok if anybody wants to take a look. It's just not the case. Good surgeons are more expensive. That's just the facts. And if you're paying almost nothing for surgery in another country, it's a problem. You know, it's hard as an American to know how to vet people in other countries. We're not familiar with their licensing, with their accreditation. We can barely um, vet people here. I mean, honestly. Well, yeah, like people can barely vet people here. And then I don't think patients quite have an understanding of what paying for surgery means. When you pay me for a surgery, you're also paying me personally to care for you post-op. So if you have a complication and come in at 2 a.m., I'm going to be caring for you. You're not going to have that if you pay someone in another country and then come back to the United States. Even for minor complications that are total inconveniences, you don't have someone to care for you. And no one wants to take care of you for free. So you are going to be paying for other surgeons to care for you here. And it's 
hard to find someone to do that. So these patients end up in emergency rooms and they typically have problems that could have easily been helped that go far, far, far until they're sick in ICUs with sepsis and neck fashion, all kinds of crazy things that we see that you just don't really see after these surgeries in the United States. And it's not that they're necessarily doing something horrible. They're just not being managed by a normal post-operative team like you are if you're around your surgeon. I mean, it's, it's really problematic for a variety of reasons. Absolutely. I have to say the only time I've ever seen a true breast augmentation infection was someone who did it for surgical tourism. Yeah. Uh, I know it can happen and I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's so rare. And my one case was someone that had traveled out of the country. So it's interesting. But Kelly, you're right. Part of what you are also paying for is the post-operative care. And that's all bundled in into your surgical quote. It includes your post-operative visits and, you know, and phone calls or however few or however many there are involved. And when you have a question or you need someone to look at something or you need some small little intervention, but your surgeon is six, 12 hours away, it really makes it so that that's not a reasonable option. Yeah. Often my experience with taking care of people in emergency rooms that have had surgery out of the country, they're often not even able to get hold of the people that operated on them. Like that's a very common complaint I get that, hey, I called whoever did my surgery in Mexico and I can't even get them on the phone. And I'm sorry, but you end up in an ER if that's the case. It's, it's too much for someone to figure out on their own. And unfortunately, the emergency room, people don't understand these aren't surgeons. The emergency room doctors have no idea how to take care of plastic surgery complications. This is just not ideal. Yeah. And things like seromas, they usually freak out about it. Yeah, it's not a big deal, but still it has to be taken care of. And you can't go back in three months and have the seroma managed. No, not at all. I mean, it, it could ruin your results. You can get infections. There's just so many complications that are easily managed that become disasters if you let them go. And Serum is a great example. Okay, here's another myth slash personal commentary. So your plastic surgeon asking you to get to a healthier weight is fat shaming. What do you think about that? You know, this is obviously a hot button issue right now. So I think the reality is, is that medical fat phobia exists. And I think we can live in a world where we acknowledge that that is the case, but we also acknowledge that there's certain procedures and plastic surgery in particular that have been well documented that patients over a certain BMI, and yes, I know BMI is not perfect, but those patients have much higher complication rates that move into an unacceptable arena. So I don't think it's always fat shaming, but I do think sometimes it is. Well, I have never been, other than being pregnant, particularly overweight. But I will say when I talk to patients about their weight, it it's certainly in, in no way, shape, or form intended to shame them. I think people need to love themselves and, and ideally love their body. But part of that also involves taking care of your body. You can't say that carrying around an extra 80 or 100 pounds is good for you. So from a medical perspective, there's no one that's going to agree with that. And that's not to make you feel bad about yourself or to shame you. It's more about as your surgeon, as I'm counseling you about your options and the risks and benefits, that carrying around the extra, whatever the amount is, if it's substantial, really tilts the scale onto the con side, meaning a lot higher complication rates. Two out of three American adults are overweight or obese. And that means that you are at increased risk for heart disease and stroke and diabetes and arthritis and even cancers like endometrial breast and colon cancers. You're at higher risk for those cancers. So carrying around that much extra weight 
is not healthy. And like Kelly said, it, it definitely increases your risk of major complications. I think we need to be realistic about what you and I do too. I mean, we're doing aesthetic, reconstructive, and cosmetic procedures on people, right? So none of these things are an emergency. So And they don't the have to is, be done. And they don't have to be done. So the goal is that every patient is at the healthiest version of themselves, no matter what that is. Now, I do think some of the BMI cutoffs like the insurance companies have are not reasonable. Like, you know, there are women that are horribly affected by the size of their breast to the point where they have a difficult time exercising. And if that woman comes to me and is a BMI of 34 or 35, I don't think it's unreasonable to do a breast reduction on that patient. And you have a discussion, hey, you know, you statistically are going to have higher wound rates, I think this is worthwhile because this is affecting your health, etc. That being said, though, that's talking about a surgery that has both functional and aesthetic improvements. If you're talking about a surgery that doesn't have any functional improvement, it's 100% a cosmetic procedure, I think you have to be really careful with the decisions you make because my goal is not to hurt people and certainly not for a procedure that is elective and, and frankly doesn't have to be done. But I do have a lot of kind of wiggle room with surgeries that have a big functional improvement. I think that, you know, if you have the right patient, it makes sense. You can do people in the hospital that you would normally do outpatient. There's a lot of kind of fancy footwork we can do to make surgery safer on people that are on the higher end of acceptable BMI. But at a certain point, our goal is to not hurt people. Sometimes somebody's weight is too much and it's dangerous. Oh, sure. But for me, I'm not going to take someone to the hospital with a BMI of 40 to do a tummy tuck because they're sick. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to do it, period. Tummy tuck's a hard one. I mean, you know, it's a hard one for me because I do this thing where you look at how the weight is distributed. And you that know? plays I mean, a people, role too. Yeah, intra-abdominal yeah, versus thighs and buttocks versus, and such. Yeah, I don't know. I just try to treat everybody as an individual. I don't really have hard and fast cutoffs for people, but there's this big push for body positivity. And I think that I want every woman out there to love themselves and be happy. And I don't want people to make assumptions about their health based on their appearance. But I also think that they need to understand that our goal as physicians is to do what's safe on people. And I think that if we we are not comfortable and we think something is unsafe, I, I think that, that it's reasonable for us to say no. Like you said, these are elective cosmetic surgeries. For several reasons, not only from a risk profile, being at a more ideal weight is more favorable, but also aesthetically, you're going to look, yeah. it's going to look so much better as you get closer to the ideal weight. So for several reasons. But yes, there is some wiggle room when you look at especially the the post-bariatric patients, they, they've done a lot of studies on them with regards to complication rates and BMI. And whereas they advocate for 25 and under, sure, that would be great. I mean, I would love that. That means you're... <laughs> yeah, it's just not out there. I, yeah. I've never seen a post-bariatric patient with a BMI less than 25. And I just don't feel good about denying these surgeries for people with, with so much extra skin that they're functionally having problems because their BMI is not 25. Yeah. So I don't think that's realistic. That's ideal but that because that's yeah. a true, but that's not realistic. And and 30, I think that's more realistic. I kind of push patients up to about 32. I mean, maybe some people are like, oh, I'm 32, 7. Oh, gosh. So, I mean, yes, there's some wiggle room. But if you're 38, I think you just need to lose. You need to lose a little bit more weight. It's about reducing bad things, complications, and optimizing good things, good results. So, yeah, it's a win-win. Yes, absolutely. Okay, I don't think you're going to like this next myth, but we're coming to an end, so I saved a slight bit of a doozy for the end. <laughs> All right, last myth. Gender-affirming surgery in young children is a good idea. Let me start this off 
before you have commentary that as you and I both well know, plastic surgeons are the masters in reconstructive surgery. So if there's someone that's going to be doing this kind of surgery, it's a plastic surgeon. And classically, we're not the ones on the, the front lines of transgender care. We're not the first group of physicians that the patient is seeking help from. You know, we're not the American Academy of Pediatrics, but plastic surgeons certainly would play and and many of them do play a major role in what is described as gender affirming surgery. What are your thoughts? Do you think that this is a good idea? I mean, I'll, I'll just say a few things. So I have a pretty extensive experience with the trans community. I did my general surgery training at Cedar sinai and there's one of the largest trans communities in the world in the area surrounding that hospital. So I've been taking care of trans patients since I was a baby doctor 20 years ago. And I do gender affirming top surgery occasionally in my practice. And, you know, here's the situation. I went to a really good lecture on this, not last year, but the prior year at our national meeting. And first of all, the amount of bandwidth in the media that goes to this subject when there are such a small amount of people that meet this criteria is crazy to me. But these parents and these social workers and these psychologists and these surgeons are trying to save these children's lives. Like these kids that are getting gender affirming surgery are not getting bottom surgery. They're getting top surgery. And usually the youngest they'll go is 16-ish. So between 16 and 18 before these kids can make kind of decisions on their own, parents are doing top surgery. The theory behind it is that these are surgeries that are reversible. It's certainly not ideal, but like if you put a breast implant in someone, you can take it out. If you do a female to male top surgery, you can do surgery later to give them breasts again. Are we going to see kids that decide later on that this was not the right decision? I would imagine because that's just the reality of life. But I personally believe parents care deeply about their children as do their doctors and are doing the best they can with the information in front of them. I wish that no child felt they were in the wrong body, but the reality is, is that some children do. And there are people that have a, the very difficult task of wading through these issues and deciding who needs surgery and who doesn't. And I'm really glad it's not me because it's a difficult, complicated topic. I think it's a difficult topic. And I don't have a huge practice of transgender surgery, but I have done, you know, I would I describe this as a small to fair amount of top transgender surgery. And they're just like any other patient in that they have a problem and they want your help. Adult transgender surgery in my mind is quite different from minor transgender surgery. And my thoughts are this. I agree with you in that I'm optimistic that most of these parents and physicians taking care of, of these children are doing their best to help them. My concern is that, look, when you're a kid, I'm sorry, like when you're four and you wear a dress and you're like, and you're a boy, that you're just exploring things. You're you're trying to figure things out. I'm not sure that it's fair to be like, well, little Bobby wants to be a girl now, so we're going to change his name. We're going to, you know, wait till he's 13 or 14 and cut off his breast. There's so many things that are going on in a young child's mind. You know, you can't even rent a car till you're, what, 25? Because your frontal lobe isn't developed enough that insurance companies are, are like, well, yeah, they make good decisions. Like, they make terrible decisions. So as a doctor, I'm just hesitant to be part of that bad decision. And maybe in some cases it's not. I'm just worried that in some cases it is. And if our goal is to first do no harm, 
are are we harming these people? I'm not sure I went to Julie was speaking at it. Or for those listening, that's Ashley, my old chairman. And they have when Ashley and I trained in Oregon, they did not have a transgender program, but they do now. And it's a, a decently well known one. And and it was actually about adolescent trans surgery. And no one's doing this on kids unless the push from the child is there heavily. And these are not decisions that are made in a callous way. I don't know. I think that my colleagues are smart, caring, lovely people. And I feel like they're not doing this for fun. They're doing it because the child is suffering from a psychiatric standpoint. And I don't know. I mean, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take a knee on this one and (laughs) trust my colleagues. I don't know what to say. I mean, I get it as a parent too. It would be really hard to be going through that with your child. But then I see things like people posting on TikTok, like, oh, you need your letter of support from your mental health professional. Well, you just go on this website and just tell them and they'll generate a letter. So there are those kinds of things out there where... Sure there are. In our community, the trans kids tend to have a very small, cohesive group of doctors taking care of them. I'm not going to operate on some adolescent that comes in my door with some note from somebody I've never heard of. You know, I don't know how much of that is actually happening. There's much bigger issues in the world than trans kids having top surgery. But I agree, it doesn't feel good to me to be doing any type of surgery on kids in general that's elective. I mean, I do breast reductions on adolescents sometimes and I struggle with that decision as well. Sure. I mean, I suppose there is some kind of relationship, but the difference is for a breast reduction, you are attempting to maintain the functionality of that tissue, right? Yeah. And you are trying to make it what would be considered to be classically ideal for that same gender. Whereas for transgender surgery, you're completely removed moving all of the functionality of the breast parenchyma and the ability to breastfeed and all those kinds of things. I guess what concerns me are things like what I read in the 30-year Swedish study, where they found that 10 to 15 years after a gender reassignment surgery, that the suicide rate for those people was still 20 times higher than other non-transgender peers. And then the other component that comes up, and I know this number is debated regularly, is that youth that are potentially identifying themselves as transgender, uh, 82% of the time they may eventually decide that they want to remain cisgender. So even if that number is not the 80%, maybe it's 50%, maybe it's 30%, I have to be concerned about the potentiality of a child whose brain hasn't even fully developed making such permanent decisions. So um, for that reason, I guess I can't get totally behind the thought of doing uh, transgender surgery on kids who just haven't finished developing mentally. Nobody wants their 14-year-old kid operated on, you know? And I would imagine that those parents, those trans kids are struggling. These were not easy decisions to make. They weren't getting TikTok psychologists to write them a note. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. I, You know, as I'm learning TikTok, there's a lot of experts in everything on TikTok. Ooh, that's good yeah. to know. If I have a I burning a question. I maker trying to school me on something yesterday. I'm like, wow, that's really kind of you. Thank you. In my area of expertise, I appreciate. Well, Kelly, any other myths that you feel like we didn't touch on that, man, you just really need to debunk for everyone out there? Not really. I mean, I always end up going to BBL whenever we talk negatively about anything in plastic surgery, Mm. that that BBL butts occur naturally in the world when I think we all know they don't. There's people with large butts. They tend to have proportional hips and thighs, and 
and legs, not these little like scrawny toothpick legs with a gigantic butt that we're creating in droves right now. Well, okay, so I did see one of your comments on TikTok about that, that that's one of your top five surgeries you don't do. I, on the other hand, do do that surgery, but I'm not doing it to create dysmorphically huge bulbous buttocks on the top of toothpick legs. Yeah. And so here's the things. So I only inject fat into the superficial, so above the muscle plane. So right off the bat. Which hopefully everybody is. Well, I I hope so, but you can get a bigger butt if you're injecting it into the muscle. So I don't know if if you're going out of country and you're trying to get a huge butt, maybe they're still putting it in the muscle. I don't know. But... It's not so much fat and only 50 to 80% of it survives. So certainly there's some volume loss. So to get the huge butt, I feel like you're going to have to have probably serial fat transfers. I mean, yes, you can get it a lot more shapely, that central lateral depression, that zone of adherence in your lateral buttock. I mean, that's what yeah. people are trying to fill that out. So the, that hip dip. the dreaded hip dip. Some people have just much more dramatic dips than others. And so yeah. just like it- I feel like we need to rename the surgery because like I mean I I agree I'll do an occasional like fat grafting to the hip dip or a little bit just to kind of round the buttock in some way but that to me isn't a Brazilian butt lift like the Del Vecchios that are using a power injector and putting 2,000 in per side like that is a beast that is crazy to me I don't get it. So I do the expansion vibration lipofilling, but I do that more to help break up some of those adherent zones so I can expand that tissue plane without creating so much pressure. But yeah, I'm not even putting in a whole liter in a butt unless someone has like a super saggy butt skin from massive weight loss. I just don't make it that tight because I don't think it's going to survive. No, I mean, there's so much of this in LA. I'm starting to see them around town and they're starting to sag. (laughs) And it it looks, it's interesting. It'll be fascinating to see what procedures we have to develop to fix these gigantic mm-hmm. asses because it's a lot and I, I just have so many questions about that entire world it's like the how they oil the patients up on the operating room table oh, and yeah. you know some of the doctors give their their patients like nicknames like there's the guy in Manhattan who his name is Basil and he calls them Basil Babes and they have like little oh. stickers that say Basil Babe pasties and they dance around and I feel I like know, that's it's, creepy it's, it's creepy and weird and it's almost like they're being branded I don't know there's, there's, something there's some surgeons different. like in my in Miami, one of them calls himself El Jefe, and um, they all have like nickname. They nickname themselves. Whatever. It, it's curious, but that's just not something I'm particularly interested in. It's about creating things that are harmonious and ideal, not these. You know, just like I don't put in two liter breast implants. You know, I I don't remove ribs to give someone Jessica Rabbit waist or, or whatever. Like those just aren't things. Or the weird fairy nose that their <sighs> people are doing. You know, have you seen? That? there's no. like this oh it's you don't look it up you're gonna okay. get upset and then the fox eye thing and yes it, it i've heard like, of that Ugh. it's really weird it's like i don't know why we're taking it somewhere weird I, I struggle with plastic surgery in general because i do believe that our beauty standards are a bit whack a lot whack and i want people to feel good about themselves and alter things that make sense but when it starts becoming you can't be beautiful in society unless you've had surgery because what yeah I think that's sad. It's sad. It just makes me feel gross. I don't want Cece, my daughter, to grow up thinking she can't be pretty unless she has weird-ass surgery, you know? Yeah, there's natural beauty. And as a plastic surgeon, I I can say for me, I feel like I'm just trying to help people get closer to that natural beauty. I'm not trying to achieve these weird cartoonish 
bulbous looking body parts, face parts. Yeah, it's 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 like this this overly sexualized version of what a woman is. Like the lips are huge, the boobs are huge, the waist is too small, the hips are huge. It's very Jessica Rabbit anime, like all of these very sexual cartoon character things, and it's it's weird. I'm not down with that. So I don't know if that's a no. myth, but it's just commentary, I suppose. <laughs> yes, just commentary. Okay. Well, cool. Thanks, Kelly. Dr. Colleen, appreciate you being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And all right, everyone. Next time. Next time.